Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for a bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at North Kentucky University. Before I get started with the show, I wanted to point out that today's interview is uh, considerably longer than most of our normal interviews. And that's for a couple of reasons. First off is that Professor Kaplan was gracious enough to give almost an hour of his time to talk with me, and I truly appreciated it because, and here's the second reason, is the topic we're talking about, uh, the value of higher education and the policy implications of his research is something that absolutely fascinates me, hits pretty close to home as I'm a a college professor. And so also, I should point out, uh, Brian Kaplan is just a delightful guy. He's a, as a libertarian, he and I don't necessarily agree on some issues, but he was so much fun to have on the show. I I enjoyed our conversation here even more than our conversation uh, we had a while ago about his previous book on uh, the myth of the rational voter, which is also great as well. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So without any further ado, my talk with Professor Brian Kaplan. My guest today is Brian Kaplan, a professor of economics at George Mason University and a blogger at EconLaw. Professor Kaplan is the author of multiple, multiple books, including The Myth of the Rational Voter, which he and I talked about on the show back in November of 2016, uh, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and his latest book, which may be his most controversial and contrarian book yet, which, which is saying a lot, uh, The Case Against Education. Why the education system is a waste of time and money. Dr. Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot for having me back. You know, the United States spends a ton of money on higher education. I mean, students, their families, they make uh, oftentimes enormous sacrifices, take on heavy debt, all in order to get a diploma. And, and of course, all of this private activity is actively aided by government, by things like grants and low-interest loans uh, to, to basically encourage more of this behavior. And there's an incredibly strong bipartisan consensus that higher education is a, not just a good, but a great investment, not just for individuals, but for our society. Um, you know, I've come up with a list of what I think are the eight main conventional wisdom sort of reasons as to why college is such a great investment. And, and in, in your book, you challenge and oftentimes I think very convincingly debunk every single one of these, uh, which has clearly made more than a few people really upset. Uh, now, I was hoping what we could do is sort of go through these reasons, this conventional wisdom, and, and you could explain to me why these things aren't such great reasons to get a college degree. Let's roll then. All right. So here's my list of conventional reasons why college is a great investment. Number one, college is a great investment because it teaches you important things. What do you think about that? Right. Uh, well, a few important things maybe, but uh, given that you're spending four or five or six years there, it's just not that much. So, you know, like here we can go and, and just take a look and see how much the college graduates know about a bunch of subjects they're supposed to study for years. So if you do, you know, you know hist- history or civics or science or foreign language, almost every college has a foreign language requirement. Yeah, you'll find that people, uh, people who are college graduates still know what would seem to be next to nothing about these subjects. For literacy and numeracy, you will see that college graduates do fairly well. Although given they're college graduates, you might think they would universally do great, and that's not true. There's plenty of college graduates whose literacy and numeracy is mediocre. And, and so how do we 
measure this sort of thing? I mean, isn't it difficult to, some people would say, well, you know, think back to their college days and say, oh yeah, that was, I learned a lot of useful things. So how do we know that people don't know, uh, don't learn important things from college? Right. Well, so the best thing to do is to actually test people in adulthood. So after they're done with school, because this one, this gives us a way of finding out how much do people actually retain. You know, it's possible that people know a lot on the day of the final exam and then just forget it. Although, uh, you know, since we're both professors and we both grade exams, we know that's uh, often not true. <laughs> yeah. uh, but in any case, uh, you know, what I suggest is, you know, the, the best way to put an upper bound on how much people learn in school is to see how much they know in adulthood. And again, so there, there's a there's something called the National Assessment of of Adult Literacy that the federal government has done a couple times, where they're basically testing adult literacy and numeracy. And then there's a bunch of nationally representative tests of all those other subjects I mentioned. So you've got you know not, you know so history, civics, science, and then for the uh, foreign language knowledge, this one I don't know of any actual national tests, but there's uh, self-reported numbers. Uh, where you know under one percent of Americans even claim to have learned to speak a foreign language very well in school, and that's claims. So of course people tend to overestimate themselves when you just say, "Are you good at this?" Oh yeah, I'm really good. Um, so you know, put all that together, and it's a pretty bleak picture of uh, how much retained knowledge people have from school. And again, you know, notice this is an upper bound because this doesn't rule out the possibility that people could have learned and learned some of this stuff outside of school. But what I say in the book is that everything that people know is the most they could have learned in school. And that's really the approach that I take and how I'm able to try to squeeze out an answer from the evidence that we got. And so basically, it's along the lines of if you don't utilize what you've learned uh, directly in some way after college, it's just not going to stick, essentially. Yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, a lot of students don't learn in the first place. But you know, even if you do learn it, if you never use it again, then you, you forget. Uh, so uh, Tiger Mom Amy Chua has a line that I really like that I quote in the book where she says, uh, well, she's quoting somebody else, but you know, every every day you don't practice is a day you get worse, right? It's true for piano. It's true for Spanish. It's true for history. It's true for everything. So you know, unless you use it on the job or you have a, a, a an enthusiastic hobby of, say, Shakespeare, then what, what you learn is going to slip away and you fall through your fingers like sand. Right. And, and the larger point, I would guess, of this is that students spend an awful lot of time and money ostensibly learning these things, and yet there's, there's no real long-term effects. And so there's a... a, a yeah, or you know, very small, very yeah. small is the fair thing to say. And, and so I would guess in, uh, in economist term, there's this huge opportunity cost. They could be doing mm -hmm. something else with their time, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, for a lot of people, admittedly, the opportunity cost would be leisure. But, uh, you know, anyway, I have this argument with my friend Tyler Cowan where he says, well, sure, people learn almost no foreign language in school, but I don't see that their opportunity cost is very high. And I say, you know, if someone just burst into your house and say, you know what you're going to do for the next three years, learn a foreign language <laughs> that you're never going to use again, um, would you consider that to be a low opportunity cost? You know, it's just this cavalier attitude that like students' lives and their time is not important. Uh, that, of course, is is endemic through the education system. Like they're just kids. What does it matter if they have to spend a thousand hours doing something boring and miserable that they're never going to use again? Right? And I, this is is where I'll say, well, it matters as much as for any other human being. So, like, you wouldn't like it if someone did that to you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, okay. So the fallback position here, and is. If, even if college doesn't teach us these important kind of discrete 
fact that we carry with us throughout life. And certainly when I think back on my college career, there are a lot of things I don't remember for, for certain. But what I, what I like to think, and I think what a lot of professors like to think is, okay, fine, but college teaches you how to think, critical thinking skills. And so these are things that especially you hear from people in the, uh, in the liberal arts who say, well, this will teach you to be a better thinker. And that's a valuable thing. Right. You know who else does this is economists, uh, which is funny because economists normally have nothing but contempt for psychology. <laughs> I mean, I assume, like in graduate school, how many times did I hear economists go, well, that's what they say over in psychology. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, uh, this is where suddenly economists become armchair psychologists and say, yeah, well, uh, even though you don't remember anything you're tested on, presumably there's another invisible untested benefit that everybody's getting. Uh, so anyway, this is something where it is indeed studied by people in, a field, in the field of educational psychology. And uh, you know, what I learned when I, when I delved into this is that they've been working on this for 100 years and they're ultra pessimistic about it. So you know, they, you know, they've been doing lots of experiments and other kinds of approaches to the question just to see, does studying one thing make you better at everything? Uh, to what extent do people actually take, uh, if you take a class called critical thinking, to what extent does this improve your critical thinking outside of the classroom? And, uh, you know, like the answer is like they, uh, they find it very hard to find much of an effect. It seems like teaching is actually highly specific. And the odds that you would go and uh, be, you know, become a better thinker and then apply that on a totally different kind of problem is just very unlikely. So, you know, like the way that these experiments are usually set up is you just test people, uh, you know, one thing or not, you know, randomly assigned to learn one thing or not. And then you go and give both groups a second question, which is closely related to the thing that, some, that half the people were taught in the first part of the experiment, and to see whether they improve. And the main result is unless you tell people, use what you learned in the first part of the experiment to solve this problem in the second part of the experiment, unless you do a very heavy-handed, spoon-feeding approach, there's very little gain. People just have a lot of trouble seeing the connections between things. And of course, this is all assuming they remember anyway, which is also generally a pretty heroic assumption. Now, and this isn't just ordinary students. This is even true, right, for, for graduate students, people who yeah, you would yeah. think are, are, should be really into this. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so one of the psychologists that I, that I quote is a guy named Douglas Detterman, who actually has this great passage where he talks about how his approach to teaching has changed over time. He's like, well, you know, you, you know, as when he first starts doing it, he's these, he's, he's these very idealistic views where he's going to let everybody figure everything out for themselves, where you're like, you're a graduate student. So like, like I, like, I'm not going to tell you what things are. You have to, uh, you know, you have to just go and do full investigation and come to your own conclusions. And then he just said, like, like when I tried doing this, like people learn nothing. It was just a waste of time. And he says, now I do exactly the opposite. Now I go and I tell them what the answer is and then explain it to them. And maybe that will work. Although, you know, even that's kind of disappointing, but at least there's, there, there is a snowball's chance of hell that working. Whereas even for excellent students, just saying, here's, some, you know, here's all, the, all the evidence, figure this out. They just don't know where to start. They just flounder. Like, what? what? What am I supposed to do here? Right. And, you know, again, really the difference between the you know, great students and average ones is great students learn the material. Right. And presumably, I would guess there would also be this fade out effect with teaching you how to think as well, just like mm -hmm. we saw with discrete knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, you know, there's fade out and a lot of it is very specific. So, you know, there, there is a very good meta analysis of the teaching of critical thinking in college where, you know, there's plenty of evidence that on the final exam of a critical thinking class, you go and you answer the, those que uh, the questions in the final exam better than you would have at the beginning of the class. But that doesn't mean that you would, that you would be using that critical thinking in any other class. 
right? Much less that you would retain it after graduation. And again, all of these are things where it's easy to just say, well, clearly, if you know it on the final exam, then it's changed your life. I'm like, no, it doesn't mean that it's changed your life. It might not even change your performance in any other class. I mean, a lot of what's going on is that people say, well, on a critical thinking exam, then I need to do this critical thinking, thinking, thinking stuff. And, but this doesn't mean they're going to be doing in other classes. And generally, not much evidence of that that people would. So, again, um, you know, so the, you know, like I do cite this one study of you know, the generalization of statistics uh, outside of a statistics class. So, you know, this was a really nice experiment because they basically either they, they so they, they, they called people up and asked them a bunch of questions about sports. Uh, even though they, you know, so like the, the people called were all in a statistics class, right? And then some were called at the beginning of the class, some were called at the end, but the surveyors never mentioned that the survey had anything to do with the class because they didn't want to remind, you know, to make them think, oh, wait, this is uh, given to people in my stats class that I should use stats. So this class, they did find a modest improvement between the beginning and the end of the semester. Although notice that they were, they're doing this in like the last couple of weeks of the class. They're not doing it years later where, again, like very little reason to be optimistic that people would be applying stats to sports years after the class is done. Right. Well, let me, let me try to fall back on this. <laughs> well, what I, what I like to think as a political scientist, I teach, you know, American government, American politics. And, and I like to think that students at least come away from my class with a, with an understanding that politics and government is more complex than they might have thought. And so therefore they'll, they'll, they'll come away with a, with a certain higher level of humility and, and a greater appreciation for this and not be so quick to jump to conclusions. Am I, am I grasping at straws here or is there any reason for me to be optimistic about this? I mean, maybe you're the best teacher in the world and so <laughs> you accomplish these things. Uh, only, only you know that. We can't trust the students. How would they know that their teacher is great? Uh, but, uh, Seriously, but you know, but, but seriously, you know, you know, like, like, so, like, I don't know of any psychological study specifically on this question that you're asking, but the general point that uh, that if you know, that you know, even that students who who know to, to st- uh, say this stuff back to you in the final exam, uh, it doesn't mean that they've actually changed their minds in general. And again, I think the reasonable result is, I mean, you know, I, mean I guess I just ask you. So, on the final exam, how often do you even see that people have earned this lesson? Right. No, that, that's, that's a fair point. I, right. I, I so can't really on the say final, that. So, you know, like, you know, step one is to see whether you know it on the day of the final exam. They don't know it then, well, the day that their knowledge is, is at its absolute maximum, then they're not going to know it ever again. Um, you know, so like, like, what do you, like, how often do you notice students having an appreciation of the complexity of politics or, 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 a, or a humility? Yeah, I, I guess I would say that's, that's not something I necessarily directly directly measure. I, I think like most professors I tend to teach, you know, I tend to, to grade on, on content as opposed to development of attitudes and, and views of government. In general. Right. You, know, you, could have an essay, you could have an essay question where you just see, do the students ever mention that things are complicated? Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about right. that. I mean, so, I mean, again, it's not, it's not really just a matter of attitude. It's, you know, you know, like if you give them a complex question, are they able to go and marshal arguments for two sides and then say that it's, you know, that it's difficult I mean, you know, that, that, you know, that's something that, that you could look for. Um, yeah, but like, you know, in general, a general result from education is if you don't test it, it's not learned. Well, right? well, well, what about, what about this? And I hear this on, on the left a lot, of course, most, most professors in the, in the social sciences and certainly in the humanities tend to be left of center. And there's this, uh, there's this common belief that, a connection between higher levels of education and uh, 
uh, being more liberal. And so some of some some of us and I'm a person, you know, of at least the center left would like to think, well, that's because we've we've taught these students and they understand that these ideas are are, are better and more humane and progressivism is sort of the way to go. Is that is that uh, <laughs> what do you think about that? Yeah, well, it's funny because, of course, there's two different two different uh, you know, emotional reactions to the same story. So there's your story of the professors feel good about it. And then there's, of course, the right wing critique of the schools are just giant, you know, giant indoctrination centers and how terrible that is. So you got two sides both taking for granted that they're actually changing their students' minds a lot. The students' minds are being changed a lot. But, you know, you know, there when I when I went to the research and also to the original data, it's just hard to see much, much, much general sign that students are becoming more liberal overall. You know, there seems to be a very slight change in the liberal direction, but you really have to take out your statistical microscope to see it. Now, again, so like, like in addition to reading the, you know, all the research that I could find, I also just looked at the general social survey over the last 40 years. And again, you know, there what you see is there is, you know, like it's a huge data set, so you can you know, use statistics to go and find a slight effect, but it is quite slight. Um, now, it's possible the last few years are different than the last 40 years, but I mean, the general fact that faculty has, is, is, uh, is unusually liberal has been true for this entire period. So it doesn't seem too likely that, that there's been a, a sea change. Again, people say, well, what about all those liberal students on Facebook uh, that I see protesting? Remember, the protesters are not representative. Protesters, it's just a handful of activists. Most students are getting drunk. They're going and hanging out with their friends. You know, they're going on dates. They're partying. This is the main thing that people are doing their free time, you know, in college and like going and protesting a talk. This is an ultra rare activity, but it gets a lot of publicity and so weighs overly heavily in people's minds as a measure of what's of what is happening on today's campuses. You know, when most of what's happening on today's campuses is the same stuff that's been happening since you know since the you know Animal House came out or, or before. Uh, so now, if you look more closely, uh, what you'll see is that there does there do seem to be more noticeable effects of education on on issue views as opposed to general ideological outlook. But the patterns are just not what almost anyone would think. So you know, like simple version is that uh, you, know, you know like you know adjusting for a lot of things. That uh, the, the more time you stay in school, the more socially liberal you get, which again is, of course, one of the things that people generally think. But at the same time, you also seem to be getting more economically conservative. So socially liberal, but economically conservative, which again is not what many professors are trying to do. It's not what people think of as, as happening on college campuses. And yet this seems to be the pattern. And when I tell this to economists, they say that's ridiculous. Those, those sociology professors are a bunch of socialists. I'm like, yeah, well, do you think sociology professors are typical college graduates? Like, they're, they're really weird. You got to go and talk to the, the, like, the vast majority of college graduates who just go and get a job in the real world and see what they think. And then you'll see that compared to the general U.S. public, they're economically conservative. They're more in favor of markets, capitalism, globalization, while, of course, also being more in favor of gay marriage. And uh, things like that. So you know, it's, it's this package, right? And then you know, like, like, how can we understand this? What in the world's going on? Uh, well, my preferred story here is that since this doesn't seem like it's anything the professors want to do, and in fact, it seems like the longer you stay in school, the more you know, the more you become like what your professors want socially, but uh, but the opposite of that economically. Uh, you know, then I think you know, the most likely story is that it's peer effects. It's students that are influencing influencing each other. Uh, you may say, well, what difference does that make? And this is where I have a big digression on, you know, on peer effects versus leadership effects and the social and the social value of the two. 
or the social effects of the two. So, I mean, you know, th- think about this. So, you know, it's gen- it's genuinely true that at least by some measures, uh, college graduates are less religious. So, if a kid, if a religious kid goes to college, this is going to give him a less religious peer group by at least some measures. And based upon what everything we know about human beings, it's probably going to cause him to become less religious to be around so many people that don't share his views. Right. And then you say, so, but then is sending people to college a good way to reduce religiosity? I mean, like, again, depending upon your view of the value, you can still agree on the mechanism. And what I say is, it's not clear at all because what this means is that people who don't go to college have, uh, by definition, or, you know, just, just by pure math, then will have an unusually religious subculture. And so while the people that go to college become less religious, the people who don't go then have a peer group that is, that is, uh, that is the offsetting tendency. Right. And again, like if you look at the 2016 election, you'll see that for the, for the first time in a long time, at least, there was a big voting gap based on education. But this means, but again, like, like this means is that, you know, Trump did extremely well among non-college people and non-college people are peer pressuring each other in the same way that college people are peer pressuring each other. What's the net effect of the social segregation that we have from college? And again, it's not at all clear that Trump would have done better in a world where fewer people went to college because then there would be more people that didn't agree with him that would be mingling with the people that were his typical voters now. So it's it's really complicated, actually. Uh, so which goes back to how you're teaching your students a good lesson, which is things are complicated. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, I've always been personally skeptical of this idea that I had any great ability to to, to mold minds. I mean, just looking out at most of my classes and and I don't think this is atypical where there's an incredible wave of of boredom and distraction and so forth and I just as you you make a great point in the book I think is that the vast majority of us just simply aren't as engaging and entertaining as the other things that are going on in students lives yeah and on top of that just thinking about how rarely professors even try to reach students on like like uh, at this level so meaning like if you just want to make a list of things that will not that are not persuasive Start with, use a lot of technical jargon when you talk, all right? And yet, what do professors do? Use a lot of technical jargon when they talk. I, I remember there's this great piece by Noam Chomsky where he's denouncing postmodernism, and he's saying, look, we're all leftists here, but you guys are, are, are mucking it up for me. Because I talk to people like a human being. I persuade people. You just go and give them a bunch of mumbo-jumbo and make them and, and just alienate people. And like no normal, no normal person who would be inclined to left-wing views will have any curiosity about, about politics after they hear a postmodernist ramble on about the decolonization of the life space and, and this kind of garbage. And it was a great piece. Now, since I don't agree with Chomsky's views, I'm, I was sort of cackling with glee and saying, this is awesome that the people that agree with you are such terrible communicators. But, you know, there's, but anyway, regardless of your view about whether or not Chomsky is right or wrong, I thought he made a profound point, which is professors are not talking to people in the way that they would if they wanted to persuade them. Well, let me take another whack at this then. What about the argument that, uh, that going to college, that being exposed to all these different courses, almost every school has a, you know, set of general education yeah, requirements. Sure. Right, supposed to make you a a better, broader, more well-rounded person. Introduce you to ideas, concepts, topics that you never would have seen otherwise. Is there anything to that, based on the research? Yes. Well, maybe a little bit, but so you know, so but you know, two things. So first of all, again, just like we can go and measure how much adults know about a topic, we can also measure their interest in different topics. How would you do that? Well, you could just see like how much Shakespeare do adult Americans voluntarily consume. 
right? And and yeah, so like in the book, I just go and and kind and uh, you know track down sales numbers for books, best selling books, best selling music, and and you know, you know what you know, what you see is basically what you'd expect, namely that. Even American college graduates are Philistines. They just do not have much interest in consuming high culture. So I don't say I, I just say that like even if you give uh, the education system 100% credit for every piece and morsel of high culture that gets consumed in this country, which seems excessive, but even if you do that, the effect of college would just be very small. Now on the other point of isn't there value in exposing people to things? What I say is uh, a little bit, but again, like. It's better to expose people to things where there's there's a decent chance that it might stick, right? So, and again, I say if you go and look at the actual curriculum, uh, basically we expose people to a list of subjects where almost no one's curious about them and where there's almost no jobs in them. So it doesn't seem like a very good tasting menu to offer. So, again, you know, think about your high school curriculum. It's like, well, uh, you might become a poet or a professional athlete or an artist or a musician or an historian. In other words, you might become a bunch of extreme and absurd pipe dreams that are that, you know, if your kid got into them, you'd be nervous. Like, what's my kid going to do with this stuff? The idea of giving people, of giving kids a tasting menu of options that are realistic, that seems great to me. So, you know, like, I remember the story of a guy named uh, Carl Hess Jr., whose dad was a Goldwater speechwriter. And the story that I heard, I haven't, I haven't verified it, but anyway, it's such a good story. It should be true, uh, is that... When, when his son was a young man, the dad went and called up like 20 different friends in 20 different industries and said, can my, my son come and work with you for two weeks for each of these? And the kid just spent like a whole year sampling a bunch of actual life possibilities that are realistic because, you know, like the dad knew a bunch of people doing these things, right? And I say, that sounds like a great idea. Yeah, so in the book, I have a chapter on vocational education and people often get freaked out. It's like a 12-year-old's told, you will be a plumber. This is your life. Like, you know, like I said, look, it would make great sense to start vocational education with a smorgasbord of different options just to see, like, here's a bunch of things. Like, let, let's try doing them, see whether you like them, see whether you're good at them, right? And again, of course, when you're selecting those 20 things, I think it is a good idea to come up with 20 realistic options instead of 20 long shots or Hail Mary passes. Right. So, so it's really, in a sense, I mean, when I think back to my college experience. I, I went through a bunch of majors and I found political science and all of a sudden I realized, ah, the, the light shone down and all that. But, but I guess what- yeah, you, how did your parents, how did your parents feel about it when you told them you wanted to do political science? Well, I started out as a business major and I think they might've been happier with that. I don't know, but, uh, <laughs> but I guess the, the, the larger point here then is that it's not this, that this doesn't have any use for some people, but when we do sort of a cost benefit analysis, the resources we're pouring into this for just a few people like me and, and perhaps you, it's yeah. just not worth the societal resources. Yeah, I mean, especially when I think people like you and me have a nat- you know, more likely, and of course, you all, your listeners uh, almost certainly have a natural curiosity, so they're, they're much more likely to self-educate. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, like, like I mean, I started studying economics for fun in high school, uh, you know, and you know, and then it was nice that I could go major in it. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, you know, so like there is a point when you just say like, how many people, how many dollars do we have to spend per student to expose them to a subject before we'll say, well, this is just too much. You know, you know, like I'm a big opera fan, but still, you know, you say, well, look, if we just expose everyone to opera, a few of them would like it. And like, all right, I guess a few, but how many millions of dollars in taxpayer money do we need to spend per opera fan created before we'll say if like, they're just going to have to figure it out on their own. Right. Right. Well, what about 
this before we get to the economic benefits where maybe I'll be on firmer ground or some of the conventional wisdom perhaps is there's this argument and I sometimes use it as is well uh, at least I am you know it's colleges socializing students in in a lot of different ways I mean even in the classroom I I've, I've told students for instance well I'm teaching you uh, attention to detail this is going to be very useful in the job market employers want people who can spell correctly and turn in work on time and so forth and I mean Surely there's something to this, right? Yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's just compared to what? Uh-huh. So again, like the, 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 like around the world and throughout history, the main alternative to young people being in school or young adults being in school is working. And you know where else you learn attention to detail and being and showing up on time and that kind of thing <laughs> on a job. Yeah. Right. So you know, like like if if basically you're you're all, if you're comparing school to being home alone in a closet, then school <laughs> is giving you great socialization. Right. But that's not really the relevant alternative. You know, at least has not been historically. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I say compared to playing video games home, in a day, home alone in a basement, I just got an email from a professional video game player who said, no, no, but what about, um, you know, like, you know, social, you know, like, like social games? And I, oh, yeah, I forgot about them. All right, so fine. But, you know, like playing video games from the 1980s, home alone in a basement, say, that's giving you poor socialization. But is that the relevant alternative? Of course, right now it might be for one individual, but if there's a whole generational shift to getting people out of school earlier, seems like there will be a big shift towards towards working earlier as well. So, I mean, again, that's the that's the main thing that I say. And then on top of that, once you realize that we should be comparing the socialization of school to the socialization of work, there's a lot of similarities, but there's also quite a few dissimilarities. One is just uh, for college today, it's so easy. The number the number of hours you're expected to work. So you know, there's been you know, there's been some great work on the declining work requirements of college since the 1960s. You know, so back in the 60s, college really was a full-time job, at least during session. But now it's uh, the amount of work that kids do, the kids do total for all kinds of studying, uh, like all, all academic work, has fallen by about a third. So now, like college, really is generally just a big party for kids. Like like they're just not expected to do much. I mean, sort of you know, sort of my favorite story is that. Uh, you know, so like in high school, kids are getting work very hard these days. So I was saying like, maybe that's actually providing some useful socialization for the world of work. But then most of those kids go to college and then college, college blows up all of the, all the, all the, the discipline that was getting taught in high school. Well, okay. So I, I think the conventional wisdom seems to have largely struck out on a lot of these sort of squishier social, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. benefit. But, but let's move on to firmer ground, uh, yeah, economic sure. benefits. And and because the, the single biggest argument I hear, and you hear this from state legislatures, from uh, we have uh, one of our previous college presidents always used to start out commencement speeches about lifetime earnings of college graduates versus non-graduates. So. I think that's probably the fundamental hard-nosed economics argument, right? That that college and college education is going to significantly increase your earning potential throughout your career. Surely that's indisputable, right? Right. So what I say is, you know, first of all, it is indisputable, but it's not as big as people think because there's a bunch of of adjustments that people normally don't make that you totally should make. By the way, I'm impressed that you'd have a university president that would say this because so many people go and say, well, look, Brian's an economist. He's one of these deluded people who thinks that college is about getting a better job and making more money. 
And for them, I can always say, well, you, there's surveys of college students that say that those are almost everybody's top goals as well. So I don't know why you're ganging up on me. But then university president says the same thing. That's that's interesting. But anyway, so you know, like you know, so the main adjustments that need to be made in order to get a realistic estimate of how much the actual financial payoff for the individual is. Uh, so first of all, you need to adjust for the initial ability of the students. So people go to college just generally have higher ability than people that don't go to college. So, you know, you know, you know like, so, you know, basically, you know, this is just the, the obvious stuff. So people go to college generally are smarter than people who don't go based upon any test that you can find. And you know, also, you know, probably just harder working, things like this. So they start off with a bunch of advantages. So you shouldn't give college full credit for the extra earnings you've got to remember that the people who go to college arrive with some uh, with some advantages that probably would have led to higher earnings even if they hadn't gone to college so that's that's one big and important adjustment the other one which you know so that one at least is uh, is uh, is uh, often done in social science although not by people who just go and look and look at the census but the other thing that's huge is completion probability so the odds that you actually finish normally the comparisons are based upon the upon the success stories that's not the way that you should evaluate investments. If you were a bank and you went and looked at how profitable the loans that were repaid were, and then said, let's make more loans. Well, wait a second. What about the loans that weren't repaid? What about the defaults? What about them? Oh, yeah. I was just hoping to not mention those. Uh, so the basic fact is that out of full-time college students, only 40% finish a four-year program in four years. Give them five years, and then it's up to like 55%. Six years, up to 60 Right. There's, you know, there's a little bit of a tweak that you need to do for people who transfer, things like that. But, you know, you know the, the, these, these numbers are basically right. Uh, so what this means is that if you go and calculate like, like the payoff for finishing in four years, but it really takes you six or seven, it's a much smaller payoff than it could actually wind up being a loss when you add in, you had to give up seven years worth of tuition and, uh, and, and, and lost earnings rather than just four. Right, and then here's the other thing that's very important to remember, or like another important fact: most of the payoff from college comes from graduation. Right, so you know, like like when I when I went and averaged all the studies that I can find, it looked like the senior year of college pays more than twice as much as the first three years combined. All right, all right, and what this means then is that it's, this completion probability is really important. It's not like if you just do three years, then give up, you get three quarters of the gain. Rather, it's like maybe you get. 15% of the gain, right? But you still paid the full cost, uh, paid three years worth of cost. All right. So, you know, so, you know, so basically what I say is that, you know, college is a very good deal for students that are very likely to finish. But anyway, but, you know, those students are, are, are again, pretty predictable based upon high school. So, you know, general rule, best predictor of future performance is past performance. People did very well in high school are highly likely to finish college. Uh, even on you know, on time might be a bit heroic, but still they'll probably finish in five years, say. So for them, college still looks look, looks like a quite good deal. But if you are someone that was in the bottom quintile of math in high school, then you know then then it's just probably going to be a disaster. Your odds of finishing are are extremely small. You know, like like five to ten percent. Right. Well, what I found was really fascinating is is how you sort of turned the conversation in an interesting way because that sort of compared to what question, that idea of, well, if you weren't in college, you would presumably be in the, be working and, and earning money. And again, that idea of opportunity cost. And, and what I found, I had no idea was that unless it seemed like you concluded that unless you are a strong, a reasonably strong student, mm -hmm. you actually are better off in terms of return on your investment 
not going to college. And most people, of course, aren't mm-hmm. strong students. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's that's right. So, I mean, if there's a question, so out of people go to college, are most of them strong? And that's where, well, if we whittle it down to people that are going to four-year colleges and so on, then maybe you could get up to a majority are strong are, are strong enough for it to be worthwhile for them. But yeah, but for but for people that struggled in high school, then on average, it, it's a bad investment. If they can finish, then it's a good investment. It's just that, that you know, but you say, look, if you win the lottery, right. <laughs> then it's a good, then that ticket is a great way to invest your, your retirement money. All right. Yeah. But you, know, you should consider the probability first. Yeah. And, right. But of course, parents don't want to do that. Parents want to just assume that their, their kids are going to get through and, and have a, you know, a, a high paying job at the end. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, if you talk, if you talk to parents, especially parents of kids that just didn't do very well in high school, there's kind of a Pascal's wager about it all where it's like, well, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen here, but what else can you do? Right. And for that, I have to say, look, if you don't, if you, I mean, like, of course, we're often just confused about what to do, but that's not a good reason to do something that is, uh, that is typically a failure. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> right. So, you know, I mean, you know, you know there's this sort of like the classic thing, you know, like, like, you know, if you know the musical Avenue Q, it begins with the song, what can you do with a BA in English? Mm-hmm. And what can you do <laughs> with a BA in English? Right. And you know, there's like, I guess I'll go to law school. So, well, why don't you first look into whether that will work out well for you before you do it? So, you know, like just saying, I don't know what to do. It's like, well, just sit there and not know for a while then. And like, you know, just try, well, why don't you just go and get the best job you can get for now? And then. And then see whether matters clarify with time. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. Maybe you will come across something that you like and you're good at without college. Uh, so you know, the, the, these are all reasonable things to keep in mind. I mean, I don't think that you know. So with parents, uh, I mean, there there is a lot of wishful thinking, and yet parents do know their kids. And I think there are a lot of parents where they're where, where they're like where they're, they seem pretty frustrated with their options. Like, well, I guess he's going to go to the college now. I don't know. What's he going to major in? I mean, I don't know that many parents of kids that are not good students who are just totally wide-eyed, naive about it. But you know, like, I think, I think you know, like you know, people are very conformist, so it's just hard when everyone else is sending your, their your, their kid to college for you to not do it. But you know, like I mean, I always encourage people to be to be selectively nonconformist and say, "Well, look around. Like, is anyone really paying that much attention to you? What are they going to do to you?" And if the and if like you don't have a good answer for those, then I would say you know, you'll keep your own counsel. Don't worry about them. Um, you know, like in the book, I talk a lot about you know, like how much employers are you know, value conformity. Uh, but I also have written quite a bit about how you need you, you know, like in you know in the modern world, there's a lot of areas where you can be selectively nonconformist and get away with it. So you know, like, like it's you know, so like really like, like you know, like it's important to be aware of what's going on, uh, what's going on in society. So you can find out when do I need to conform and then when can I take a break from this and, and just, you know, do what seems to what I think makes sense. Right. Well, you know, it, there's a big paradox here. We were in the first part of our conversation, we talked about how college really doesn't seem to teach people much that sticks, but yet there's this huge premium for people mm-hmm. who manage to finish college. And that's where we get into this idea of, and obviously it's a concept that's central to your book, the uh, signaling. And so could you mm-hmm. explain what signaling yeah. is? Yeah. So signaling, it, it's, it's another word for you know, getting certification or impressing people, right? Yeah, so it basically just says that there's, there's two ways that education could pay. It could pay because you go a, and you build up useful, useful job skills in school. That's one story. And of course, there's something to that. Literacy and numeracy are useful job skills. But signaling says, you know, there's a second story. 
And the second story is that it can raise it was education to raise your earnings by impressing employers, by letting you stand through the stand apart from the crowd by jumping through hoops. Right. And basically just to not get your application thrown away when you send it in to try to get it to try to get a job. Right. Uh, you know, an analogy that I like is there's two ways to raise the value of a diamond. One is to give the, the, the raw, uncut diamond to an expert gemsmith who perfects it with his tools. The other thing, though, is you can go and give it to the guy with that eyepiece and you can go and look at it and say, oh, it's a perfect diamond, no flaws. And then he puts a little sticker on it saying that it's a grade A diamond. And that, too, can, le can greatly increase the value of a diamond. So there's two paths. And what I say is, you know, the, like the best evidence that signaling is very important in education is precisely that we learn so much material that we're not going to use on the job, and yet employers care, right? It wouldn't be surprising if schools taught you a bunch of useless stuff and then employers didn't care. And then you say, yeah, well, this is just teachers teaching whatever they feel like and lording it over us. No big surprise there. The surprising part is that employers value the education that you've received. And in particular, they seem to put a lot of value upon completion. Right, which I say is one of the strong symptoms of signaling. Because again, if the main thing that we're going on in school is you're acquiring useful skills, then you think that every year would be about as good as every other year. But if the main thing that's going on is that you're impressing employers, then the fact that you act that you complete the whole package and at the end say, look at me, I did what I was supposed to, ta-da. That's can be that, that you know, that can be a lot more impressive, even though the last year was not especially informative in terms of job skills. Right. And then I, you know, and then on the question of exactly what is it that students are signaling with their education. So, I mean, there's sort of the obvious things like you're signaling they're smart. People with more education are generally smarter. You're signaling you're hardworking. If you're smart but lazy, it's hard to get through school. But then I say there's a third thing, which I think is, is really central to my whole story. And this is you're also just signaling conformity. You're saying, look, if our society says you have to do four years of school, I'm not going to sit there going, why? Why can't I do something else? You're just going to say, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. Four years coming right up. Right. And what's striking is that in countries where they have different cutoffs, like, you know, so like, I think in Britain, you've got a three year college system. Then, then then in those countries, the third year is the crucial one. So sort of whatever your society has declared to be crucial or important or normative, this is what employers care about. And again, this is where I'll say I'm happy to come to sound like a sociologist and I say, yeah, so like what is conform you know, what, what counts as conformity depends upon what society you're in. And in our society, Finishing a college, a bachelor's degree is a key part of what society expects of us. And then it makes a lot of sense that employers give a whole lot of rewards for those because given that all, that, uh, that is this normal view that you should finish college, a person who stops short and, and is one class away from finishing, they look defiant. They, like, they look perverse. Right? Yeah, and of course, if you were the parent of a kid one class away from college graduation, just imagine your frustration with the situation. Like, finish their stupid degree, kid. Come on. I put all this money in. I am not going to be the father of a college dropout. You. Right? And you know, like, even if parents don't say it, they're thinking it. Uh, it's frustrating because you know like, there's a big reward. Why can't you just bend yourself to finish the one last class? And the kid's like, well. I don't feel like it. Like you better feel like a kid. <laughs> well, and, and the frustrating thing, right, about the conformity signaling is that you can you can demonstrate perhaps some of these other characteristics that employers look for in other ways, but mm -hmm. there's really no way to opt out of this system and show that you're a conformist because yeah. it's by definition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, like you might be able to find something in certain areas, sub areas, but yeah, in general. If someone comes along with a radical new way to signal conformity and you do it, you don't signal conformity, you signal nonconformity. Right.
Now, I should say, you don't think that all of higher education is signaling, but you think... Yeah, of course, it, yeah, of course not. Of course but not. What was, what, so what percentage do you think is reasonable to think that of, of higher education is just really a signaling effect? Yeah, so in the book, I spend a lot of time weighing this, and in the end, my preferred number is 80%. Wow. So I'll say 80, 80% of the payoff, uh, I say, comes from signaling. I mean, I, like, I'm happy to admit this, 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 this is a number that seems high to most people. I do go over several different bodies of evidence about why I think that is, why, why I think that, that, my, that my high number, though, admittedly high, still, still makes sense. You know what I mean? You said, but, uh, you know, like, you know, I'm not married to this number. Uh, so you know, in the book, I basically I, I go and do it so, you know, that way, which I call you know, the reasonable estimate. I have another one that I call the cautious estimate. And this is where we just say that whatever extra you get from, from, from graduation, whatever, whatever like, like, bonus you get from graduation, we, I'd say, well, why don't we, well, what happens if we just say that's the signaling amount? And that still comes out, that still winds up giving you something like 60% signaling. Do it that way, so that's still a lot. And then I explore a bunch of other scenarios just to go and satisfy people's curiosity and to say, you know, even if you go down to as little as one third signaling, still this means that the, the you know, this, the, you know like, like that the social value of your education, not not the selfish value to you personally, which really doesn't hinge upon the mechanism, but the social value of other of government encouraging you to get your education, that you know winds up being quite mediocre. Yeah, and and so there's there's a lot there's a ton of waste here pretty clearly, mm-hmm. even under yeah. the most optimistic assumptions. So let me throw out a Hail Mary here for educa- mm-hmm. higher education. Maybe the problem is that education just isn't organized enough. I mean, mm-hmm. when I think about how college education is structured, all these electives, all this, you know, it's this mm-hmm. kind of smorgasbord of choice for students where they're picking classes based on things like, well, do I want to take a class at eight o'clock or does it fit into my schedule? I mean, that's that's nuts. That's not rational in, 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 that's in one sense, but it's what students do all the time in the real world. And so what I'm wondering is, what about kind of a more holistic approach where if there were a standard, you know, kind of core of ideas and they're not it's just isolated courses, but things build on each other, you know, where there's a foundation and a structure. I mean, it seems to me this is how I learn things. And I would guess it's how a lot of people truly learn and build up a base of knowledge. Uh, not only that, but if we adopted some kind of a common approach like this, I could think it could also maybe, you know, provide kind of a common ground, some social cohesion. So maybe the problem is just that we need to reform higher education. What do you think about that? Right. Um, so I mean, your idea is interesting. I don't know of any evidence that it's true, <laughs> but it's interesting. I mean, you know, like, like you know, I'm, I'm curious. I kind of want to try it, but uh, you, know, so, you know, like you know, idea like that. It's so you know, like you know what you're saying is very different from what almost any of the other education reformers that I've listened to have told me. So I kind of want one school to do your thing just to see what happens. I guess you might you might say that St. John's College does right. does yeah. what you're saying. So I don't know, you know, so I mean, again, those, the kids who go there are so unusual in so many ways that I don't know if I, I wouldn't want to generalize from it. Um, but I mean, so, you know, what I would say in terms, you know, so, you know, like, like in writing the book, this wasn't my focus, but I did, I read quite a bit about effective pedagogical techniques and especially what's effective for long run retention. And yeah, so like tons of practice, tons of drill, learning, lots of learning by doing, getting lots of, lots of, lots of detailed feedback. And then not give, not being tested just once on whether you learn something and then it goes away, but rather knowing that you're going to get tested again and again and again on the same subject. 
So these are the, so it sounds kind of like what you're saying might be like that. And if it's like that, then there is evidence saying that those, those are more effective teaching techniques. I mean, so here's a funny thing is that, uh, you know, there's this, you know, there's, there's this great paper, great paper, just, you know, like going through, uh, like, like all the evidence on a bunch of different teaching techniques. Right. And, and what, and what one of them finds is that the most effective way for doing well on one test is cramming. The most effective way for actually having long run intervention material is the reverse of cramming. It's where you just go and work on it a little bit every day. And then the authors of the piece sit there scratching their heads and saying, but then why is the people do all this cramming instead of the thing that would lead to long run learning? And this is where I'm like, this is a great paper, but have you no common sense at all, people? <laughs> students are doing the thing that gets them what they want, and they're not doing the thing that does, and they're not doing the other thing. So the students just want to get to max out their knowledge on the day of the final exam. And if that's all you want to do, cramming is the optimal method, as your own research shows, uh, to the, what I'd say to them. And on the other hand, sure, they could go and get much better longer retention if they would go and take those hours and spread them out over much longer periods, spread it out over a matter of years, but that isn't going to get them what they want, which is the good grade. So not surprising that they don't do it that way. Uh, my general general reaction to all proposals to just do it, to improve the curriculum or the teaching techniques or anything else is just that I'm ultra skeptical that it's really going to happen. Right. And the, and the reason is just that, you know, the current system gets piles of money and yet there seems to be very little curiosity about how to spend it better or how to get teaching, you know, how to get more, uh, more effective teaching techniques. There's a lot of variation in teaching techniques and change, but it mostly seems to be driven by fads with nothing to do with research. Right. So the fact that the people who've been receiving this money for all this time have such a lackadaisical attitude towards the responsibilities to their, to their funders makes me not trust them. Yeah. Yeah, no, I <laughs> right? and that's yeah, and that's that's why I say no, no, no. Here's what we should do: cut spending, austerity, and then if someone if someone says, oh well, apparently taxpayers are mad at us, maybe we we maybe we should go and step our game and actually figure out how to deliver value. Uh, that's where I'll say that's a great attitude. Now do it successfully and prove it, and then maybe we'll restore some of your funding. Well, yeah, Neil. Let's talk a little bit about the sort of the policy prescription part of this because, of course, college hasn't always been something that was for everyone. If you look kind of at the pre-GI Bill United States, uh, very different, very different world. And so I'm wondering, what do you see as, you know, a, a, a good proportion of, of the population that goes to college and what sort of policy changes do you think would, would be beneficial here, given everything you've, you've learned, everything the data says about the value of college education? Yeah, so 10% seems like a reasonable number to me. Wow, a lot uh, lower than it is now. Yeah, a lot lower. How could this be achieved? It's actually pretty easy. You just need to raise the cost. Right. Uh, so there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of research on the effect of the, of, of, of the cost of college on attendance. Most of the people doing this research want to use the research to argue for lower cost. But there's no reason you can't take their numbers and just reverse it and say we need to make the cost higher in order to get in order to get people to stop going. Or again, in general, just lower funding. So there's you know there's lots of ways that you can go and uh, and and do it. But again, basically shifting the cost more back on to students and their families, which again like freaks people out because people say, well, this this means that like no poor person could ever get a good job again. And I said, no, 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 it doesn't mean that at all, because you know like, like remember. Like the more people that go to college, the more education employers, the more college employers we expect. And as college and, and as the share of the population with college rises, 
the, you know, the main social result is just that employers jack up the education requirements that you need in order to get the job. So in the book, I have a whole section on what's called credential inflation. And this is very well documented, especially sociologists are interested in it, although there's some economists as well. We're basically just go and look at how much education do people have, do people in different jobs have at different periods in history. And you'll see that there are many jobs now where, mo where it's common to have college, where in the past it was not common. Jobs where almost everyone has college now, where in the past almost no one would have had it. Right? And again, this, is, this, is, this, and this makes very little sense in terms of the education as skill creation story, because then you might say, well, why do you need, like, why would you need more skill to be a waiter today than in 1950? Uh, if anything, you probably need less, because in 1950, you'd have to do arithmetic at the customer's tables. Uh, but in terms of, in signaling terms, it makes perfect sense, because if employers want people in the top third, then when you raise the education level of the whole population, you they automatically jack up the expectations and say, well, you need more education to be in the top third. So again, really what I say, the result of cutting education spending would be that you could get a good job out of high school once again, as used to be true. Yeah, you know, I found that was a really interesting part of the book because my as as a uh, as a liberal my first reaction when i when i read your policy prescription i thought was well this is this is horrible because mm -hmm. you know poor kids who are who have a lot of potential won't be able to take advantage mm -hmm. won't have the access mm -hmm. but but it seems to me your answer to this was that well in certain instances that may be true but for every say one kid that's true for there are going mm -hmm. to be Dozens, if not hundreds, of kids who would actually will benefit. Is that is that more or less what yeah, you're saying? Yeah, 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 exactly. So again, just think, you know, like what was it like to uh, to be uh, uh, in 1950 to be a high school dropout looking for a job? It just wasn't that bad back then. The stigma was much less because there were so many high school dropouts running around. But today, the stigma is enormous because there's so few. So again, when you're thinking about kids from poor families and saying our modern society is so great, well. It might be great for a kid from a poor family from a college degree, but how is it for a kid from a poor family who's a high school dropout? It's a lot worse for them. So you really, really should consider both. Now, it's also worth pointing out that there are some very simple ways that you could avoid the, uh, you know, the uh, like the obvious downsides. Like you could, you could say, look, we're cutting spending in general. We're going to keep merit scholarships, right? We're going to keep mean, merit scholarships for kids from poor families. So doesn't we don't need to give merit scholarships to rich kids? What's the point? Why should taxpayers pay for that? But yeah, you know, like you'd be, you know, you could take just ten percent of the money that we're now blowing on people that don't even finish and just say we're we're going to go and give a free ride to kids that are really good for, if they're from poor families. And, you know, like the, and you know, like basically any time that you go and take money that you're throwing indiscriminately everyone and then apply some common sense restrictions to it, it's very easy to save a lot of money. You know, anytime that you say, you know, instead of giving it to everybody, let's give it to very talented kids from very poor families. And then like, you know, that's what you've cut the cost 90% I mean, right away. So, I mean, yeah, you know, like, again, to me, this is like, and there are, by the way, there are a few states that actually uh, have this focus, I think Georgia and West Virginia. And these are also, by the way, some of the uh, you know, scholarships that have been most favorably evaluated in cost benefit terms by economists. So, you know, again, there's, there's a great logic to it of, yeah, mine's a terrible thing to waste. So, you know, if you have someone who's really talented, then, you know, like, um, it probably makes a lot more sense. But, you know, there's someone who's been in the bottom fifth of math scores for his whole life, and you're going to go and try to and give that kid a full ride to college. Like, what is the what in the world is the point? But, but now, of course, some people would say, well, then the, the obvious solution is then to just essentially cut government funding and cut all these subsidies and so forth. But there are plenty of people on the right who want to do that. But their argument is exactly the opposite, that if government does that, 
then that's actually going to end up lowering the cost because these subsidies are artificially raising the cost. It could actually make potentially the problem worse instead of better. Yeah, no. So I mean, no, no, I don't think there's an economist alive who would say that. <laughs> I mean, there must, there must be one. But here's the thing is, it's true that government's pumping up demand and that raises the price, but it also increases the quantity. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. So yeah, so you know, in other words, the fall in tuition is not you know, like tends to moderately offset the, uh, the, the, the like the, the the reduction in attendance. But still, like if there's less money for it, there's going to be less of it. That's like like so so basic, and all the evidence and all the empirical evidence says exactly that same thing. That's yeah. So I mean, it's true that like when a lot of government spending funding has raised the cost of tuition, and therefore. Uh, you know, so again, imagine this: if you kept, if the government funding were as much as it were today, but the tuition were what it was 50 years ago, there'd be even more people in college. That's true, but nevertheless, there, you know, the, the fact that there's all this government funding has clearly raised the number of people who go. I don't think that you, that can be seriously okay. debated. Now, I'd like to close with a with a personal question. I guess I, huh? I, I hate to not ask you this, but given all of this, uh, it, this book has made me feel really bad, uh, and so I'm wondering: should I should I feel like some sort of I don't know some sort of parasite that, as a university professor, I'm not really contributing anything of of of, of real value to society? Uh, can you help me out here, please? Yeah, so yeah, that's a good question. Of course, you can say the same for me. For me, I have the easy out of well, my social value is blowing the whistle on this corrupt system. There you go. <laughs> so I, so I can, I can uh, sort of salvage my self-esteem that way. Partly, in terms of like how I go about my day, like honestly, like I, I feel great. Uh, you know, and, you know, like you know, so like how do like how like how do I feel like teaching? My teaching is worthwhile. Well, honestly, I teach at the top of the class. And I uh, and and like you know, there, there's a few students who like it and appreciate it, and so the, you know for me they make it worthwhile. And the students who are bored or don't show up, I just don't think about them very much. On uh, terms of like like am you know, but even there, I like honestly when I think about myself, I have to say, well, I'd have great social value if people are really going to listen to me. But are they really going to listen to me? I don't know if they will. And that, uh, you, know, you know, like you know the main main thing that I I would say here is that you know, like you know. Every, you know, so every, you know, every society has a you know, has a bunch of jobs that are where, like, I would just say, like, they're evil and you shouldn't do them at all. So, you know, like, like you know, for for, for me, I am a big open borders person, so I just think that I, I wouldn't work for ICE. Like, I just think what they're doing is terrible. You know, I, I don't, I don't know, you know, I don't know your view on that, but anyway, that's my. No, view I'm with or, you there, yeah. You know, yeah, you know, like you know, so. Anyways, yeah, so you know, you know, there are jobs like that, and then then there are just jobs where. Like you know, they're not really very socially valuable, but you know, like so you're still in, you're not really doing anything wrong just by doing them. And I think uh, being a college professor is basically like that. Although I do mean I do I do think that you know if you've got some guild, at least go and you know when you get a chance, let taxpayers know that they're not getting what they think they're getting out of it. So, so at least to to try to tip the scales there. And in terms of you know, like so like you know, both of my older sons are interested in being professors, right? And you know, like for them, you know, I like, say so, yeah, like like you know, it's a great job and like, you know, like how, like how much are you really contributing to society? Yeah, you know, well, you know, like maybe if we can make a big difference, you know, you know, they like, like in policy, but you know, like, are we going to make this big difference? I don't know. So, yeah, I mean, like it's, it, it, it is a tough question. Uh, I mean, just asking it, of course, it puts you in a much higher moral category than all the people who never will wonder <laughs> all the people who keep doing it without, without the slight, without the slightest sense of shame, you know, I mean, I mean, I, w- I would say that just doing this podcast, I think you've you've uh, you've cleared the slate, so you can keep doing your job with a clear conscience. But uh, those other guys, 
they ought to, they, 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 you know, they're doing, you know, they, they, they really ought to take a good hard look in the mirror, Michael. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I think, I think that is a great note to end on. I feel better about myself. I appreciate that. Yeah. So with that. Right, we, right. And, and let, let me just say yeah. that, so, you know, like given, given what you said about your political views, I really appreciate that you, that you really read the book and just, and just, you know, took the argument so fairly. I mean, you know, so you know, like, like, you know, honestly, whenever I write, I always just have in mind someone who doesn't agree with me that will, that will at least listen to me. Right. And, and, you know, and just like calm, you know, like, you know, just having a calm conversation. This is always what I'm trying to have in my head in my head. And, you know, it's just it just really means a lot that someone someone who like who disagrees with me on a lot of things would still find it where you know, put in the effort and and, and just, just just have a great conversation. So I really appreciate it. Well, well yeah, that's one of the things I'll, before I close, I just mentioned this. One of the things I really appreciated about the book is it felt to me like you were consciously thinking about all the strongest objections. Mm-hmm. And answer, I mean, it, you, you go into, it's very rigorous in the sense of answering mm-hmm. and not just bypassing those objections. And I really mm-hmm. appreciate that. It was also the cause of a lot of my frustration because every time I had a, I can't tell you how many of my comments were, but, but, and then you'd answer that every single one of those buts. And it was, I think that's what makes it such a great book. And I definitely encourage uh, listeners to pick it up. It's well worth reading. Yeah, I mean, it's only 20 bucks on Amazon, so can you, you, can you afford not to buy it? I don't think a- so. Absolutely. Well, with that, we will close. Brian Kaplan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking with you today. Yeah, likewise. It's been awesome. Thanks a lot. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Support from listeners just like you is what keeps the show going, and we truly do appreciate it. If you're interested in joining our great group of Politics Guys supporters, you can go to politicsguys.com and click on the Patreon or PayPal links you'll see there. And if you want to support the show without spending anything, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, or whatever other podcast app you use. Share this episode with your friends and followers, and pass along our new show posts and tweets on Facebook and Twitter. Leaving reviews and ratings on iTunes also helps. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post things throughout the week, is facebook.com slash page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Trey Orndorff, and Bruce Johnson. Today's show is produced by Michael Baranowski. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. We hope you'll join us.